Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, uh, Tony Krasenzi joins us here in our studio. And, Tony, great to have you Thank with you, us. Thanks for having uh, me. Happy holidays and Same all those great course. things. You know, one of the things I like about your notes is you say, barring a zombie apocalypse <laughs> uh, or a spontaneous collapse in asset prices, uh, that's a lot of, you know, if this doesn't happen, this won't happen. But I'm wondering, what would a zombie apocalypse look like to Tony Crescenzi? Well, this note was um, uh, the product of uh, PIMCO's quarterly cyclical forum, where we look at uh, the global economy a year forward and try to devise an investment strategy. And Joachim Fels was the lead author uh, to that. Um, so the zombie apocalypse, of course, would be probably, well, there are a few things. One would be an inflation breakout which would cause the Federal Reserve to increase its interest rate substantially and change the climate for investors substantially. Think about the stock market. It probably would be upset by it, and so would the corporate bond market and other asset classes. Can that happen? Is, is it possible for inflation to accelerate, not gradually, but in a kind of a lurch higher? Is it, you know, can you wake up one day on a Thursday and find out, oh my goodness, Oil's gone to $75 a barrel, like the Saudis said, but it's not 2023. It's still only 20, let's say, 18. Well, uh, Janet Yellen a couple of years ago wrote a note on inflation and it called Inflation Dynamics, uh, September 2015. And she did a thorough examination of what causes inflation. And what she concluded was that the most important driver of inflation is not the amount of money that exists and this factor or that factor. It's inflation expectations, what people believe. So it is a very much a behavioral thing. And since most people have the view that inflation will stay low, people meaning investors, consumers, businesses, it's highly improbable that it would break out quickly. It would take a major change in the, uh, the central bank sphere for uh, investors, consumers, businesses to believe, think differently about inflation in the future. So for example, in 2018, what if inflation picked up as a result of the U.S. jobless rate falling below 4%, which is likely next year since it's currently 4.1. What if the Fed decided, hmm, we don't care. Uh, we're going to let it pick up because it's been so low. Then inflation expectations would build up, and then, who knows, it could go higher. But that's improbable. The Federal Reserve has learned over multiple decades to be cautious about letting inflation pick up, and so it's not likely inflation will pick up meaningfully uh, for very long. But having said that, in your note, you say there is the potential for yes. four rate increases by the Fed next Absolutely. year. That's a little bit more aggressive. For sure. Uh, so we saw um, the Federal Reserve deliver three interest rate hikes in 2017. Three seems probable next year, and that's what the Federal Reserve itself expects. And there were inconsistencies, though. And we were discussing this at PIMCO with our, an advisor, uh, ben Bernanke, not only to uh, name drop here, but he noted these inconsistencies as well in the last Federal Reserve Summary of Economic Projections. This is a quarterly report the Fed produces that shows projections on economic growth, right. unemployment, and inflation. There was a big inconsistency. Here it is. The Fed projected economic growth, like we do, of 2.5% for 2018, but it did not project a meaningful drop in the unemployment rate, nor an increase in inflation, nor an increase in interest rate hikes. And so something has to give, and that give may mean a fourth rate hike in 2018 because it probably will mean 
a, a lower JavaScript. Real quick on this, and the the simple math. It's called the Oaken's laws. Member Nanki pointed mm-hmm. out. If job, if economic growth of two and a half percent exceeds growth potential, which is considered one point eight by seven tenths, the jobs rate by Oaken's law should fall half of that. The Fed, in its summary of economic projections, had only a two tenths drop instead of the roughly four that Oaken's law would say that it will drop next year. Hey, listen. So. Might Rich Clarita be on that Fed next year, maybe thinking about doing four rate increases? Of course, there's a report out there in the Wall Street Journal, uh, according to those in the know, that the White House has interviewed uh, Mr. Clarita, who's, of course, the managing director at PIMCO, and also some others. Uh, we talked about this on Bloomberg TV with our Marty Shanker. Um, do you, anything well, there's you, only any, any insight you can just give Pim and me. It's just the three of us. Well, there would <laughs> there would only be one uh, announcement, of course, of whether or not Rich Clarita is, is is named to the Federal Reserve, and that would, of course, uh, come from the White House. But I would say about Rich and I uh, that he's expert, he's exemplary, he's exceptional, and these qualities are important. Also, he's He's very affable and um, works well with people. This is important. Collegial. Collegial. Here's a story I have from Alan Greenspan. He visited us when he was an advisor to PIMCO in Newport Beach. And he said that when he joined the Fed in 1987 as Fed chair that uh, he learned that it was the most collegial organization he ever worked for. For example, he expected staffers, uh, PhD staffers, to walk into his room with competing views on the, the, the policy, and instead they were working together. This collegiality is something that uh, uh, someone like Rich Clarita would contribute well to. It's very important to the institution of the Fed, and uh, Rich, of course, would be ideally suited uh, if chosen. Can I just push back on that? I mean, why do you want everybody to agree with each other well, before they actually present the but information? This is not agreeing with each other. It's not. It's it's. Well, you got to present providing input, views, right? And I mean, someone says don't right. don't raise interest rates three well, times. Well, collegiality in the Federal Reserve sense means. Healthy discussion. Uh, they're all working together with their varied points of view. This is something that PIMCO mm. knows well. We hold in our quarterly forums, and Rich Claret is head of them. Uh, 200 people um, attending uh, uh, in Newport Beach uh, contributing views. It's a flat structure where everyone has a voice. Uh, one could have no rank at all in terms of uh, official rankings. Of course, they have high rankings as human beings. Uh, they could be a vice president, a senior vice president, executive, a managing director. Who who knows? The main thing is that it's a voice and it's an, it's an input. And this is something that Rich absolutely understands quite well, exceptionally well. What about, though, also we know that Rich served as a economic policy, assistant secretary for economic policy at the Treasury Department from 02 to 03. So he comes at things with an economist background with a financial background, if you will, will comes at it from a couple different angles, Tony. How might that help the Fed, particularly in what might come in 2018? And it's also important to have a great, anyone who's appointed to the Fed should have a great understanding about communications. Remember a great line from Ben Bernanke in his most recent book, The Courage to Act. He said that, he's repeated this to us at PIMCO, that, that monetary policy is on action, 98% communication. Hmm. In other words, uh, what the Fed says can affect markets and people's expectations, and it's important to um, have an understanding of that. And an understanding of economics and uh, monetary 
policy historically matters too. We spoke about this on television a little while ago, Carol, about how mm -hmm. uh, Ben Bernanke understood the uh, dilemma of the Great Depression and how the Fed failed in the 1930s to produce enough money to prevent a collapse in the money supply, the amount of money that existed. It fell by a third, according to Milton Friedman, and so it was a great contributor to the Great Depression, the lack of money. Uh, ben Bernanke understood that it, ex that it was important. He printed lots of money just as Kuroda did in Japan and Draghi in, in Europe. Uh, these are very important things to understand. Um, that's a big example, but there are a lot of little examples about how uh, knowledge about monetary policy can, can serve uh, a member of the Federal Reserve quite well. Do you think it's, more, it, it's easier to manipulate people's opinions now than it was, let's say, in the 1930s? Yes. Um, so then and, that apocalypse that you describe or that sudden change in people's expectations is perhaps more likely to happen now than it was before we had Twitter, smartphones, and 24-7 right. news cycles. It probably, perhaps it's not the uh, that the, the Fed can convince or, or communicate more. Uh, it's the tempo, the speed at which things happen, of course, is faster. But, uh, of course, the public could could have uh, a, a fear permeate quickly. Think of the movie It's Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, there's a, a scene, I recall, with a, a bank run. Uh, how do people know that there's a bank run occurring in, in that day and age? It's simply word eventually gets around. Today, it's simply the speed at which it gets around is faster. Now, you just pound the, uh, you know, online button, right? You just tweet. But, I mean, if you go to a website and it stops working and it's your bank, yeah. all of a sudden everybody in the world Suddenly knows that. Everything's changed or a tweet or something posted on a social website. Absolutely. Communication is important to central bankers. And that's one of the key things that's keeping interest rates low and causing the yield curve to be flat, as they say, meaning short-term rates are close to Long-term rates is the idea that this communication has yeah. calmed investors. They don't worry and ask for compensa compensation against the risk of higher inflation and higher policy rates anymore. All right. We're going to continue the conversation. We've got more with Tony Crescenzi, PIMCO market strategist and portfolio manager. I'm Pim Fox along with Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Carol Master, along with Pim Fox. We are in for Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrow on this Wednesday. We want to talk a little bit about uh, the tax legislation. We mentioned earlier about Barclays taking uh, a one-time hit from the U.S. tax bill, but expecting to make it back to some extent on future earnings. David Burton is with the Heritage Foundation, senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We find him on the phone from the nation's capital on this Wednesday. David, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. This tax proposal, we talked about it earlier, not proposal, this new tax legislation overhaul, if you will. We talked about it earlier. Uh, greatest benefit really is for corporations. The, yes, in terms of the positive economic effects, the biggest uh, benefit uh, is the reduction in corporate tax rate from 35 to 21 percent which, while it sounds like a lot, um, actually puts us in the middle of the pack among industrialized countries. Uh, we'll be at about 25% once state corporate taxes are taken into account. But until uh, next week, we're literally the worst, highest 
corporate tax rate in the industrialized world. So we've made progress. Uh, it also contains a number of other provisions that are constructive. Probably the most notable is expensing for uh, machinery and equipment for five years so businesses can deduct the cost of buying machinery and equipment rather than having to deduct it over many years, five, seven, ten years. Um, <clears throat> there are a number of other positive things in the international tax area that will help U.S. headquartered companies. But on the individual side, it's not all that much to brag about. It reduces individual tax rates a couple points, but for a lot of people, that's taken back immediately by the repeal of the state and local tax deduction. David, do you believe that the economy is doing fairly well right now? Yes. I mean, it is doing uh, reasonably well. It, it, there's plenty of room for improvement, both in terms of investment and uh, productivity gains, but also there's a lot of people who aren't counted as unemployed who normally would be in the workforce. Well, uh, do we know exactly how many of those people are there and whether that is what is tipping the political scales to force this overhaul of the tax code? You can get a sense of how many people are there by looking at the broader definitions of unemployment that the Bureau of Labor Statistics put out. Um, they, they put out lots of, of different measures. The, uh, you know, the, the What you usually hear on the radio uh, is one measure, but there are broader measures uh, that would have unemployment up near, I forget the exact number right now, it's, but it's about 10%. Uh, those are people who have, have not reported in the conventional unemployment rates, but U6 is what this is called, is is uh, it reflects people who have, in effect, given up uh, looking for work for the time being. Okay, so I'm just trying to understand, why would you put together a tax overhaul plan at a time that the economy, by your own admission, is doing pretty well, and you're pointing to all these people that are outside the workforce that perhaps aren't counted, and yet, uh, if you've got a pass-through corporation, you're going to end up paying, what, 20% tax, but if you're actually working for a paycheck, is chances are that your tax rate's going to be a lot higher. How does that make sense? Well, for one, our labor force participation rate is at uh, historic lows or near those lows. There's a tremendous number of people not working that could be working, and presumably you would prefer that they be working and self-sufficient rather than uh, collecting disability or unemployment insurance. Well, I don't think anybody argues that, but I think the question is, how do you ma- how do you maintain uh, the, the sort of idea that this tax overhaul plan that reduces, you said it's good for corporations, right? I mean, it'll reduce their tax rate, although most companies don't necessarily overseas pay that tax rate of 35%. How is no, but this- the, the relevant thing you would think is you would want people to invest in producing things here in the United States. So why not make the tax cut contingent on their actual hiring? I mean, you can do that. You can put all the details you want into the tax code. Why just assume that they're going to do it or encourage it when chief executives have already raised their hands and said, we're going to buy back stock and we're going to increase dividends? Well, they'll do some of that, and that's fine. The money that when they buy back the stock, that money doesn't disappear. It gets reinvested somewhere else, and the market determines where it goes. It goes to the generally the, what people believe will be the highest return investments. 
Uh, as you probably are aware, a tremendous number of U.S. companies have been leaving. For example, Anheuser-Busch is now Belgian, Burger King is now Canadian, and so on down the line. By reducing our corporate tax rate and improving the international treatment of U.S. businesses, we're going to see less of that. We're going to see more factories being built in the United States. We're going to see higher rates of productivity growth. We're going to see a lot of, of positive things as a result of this legislation. But I don't want to oversell this legislation. It is a shadow of what it should have been. Uh, it's probably going to result in 2.5% uh, increase in the GDP or the overall size of the economy over the next 10 years. Uh, it should have been more up around the neighborhood of 10%. This is going to be a relatively small positive uh, effect on the economy as opposed to the transformational huge kick in the pants that it could have been if they'd done it well, right. And let me just point out the Joint Committee on Taxation, um, the group within the Congress that really kind of figures out you know, what kind of kick this legislation will have, they actually say that it's going to be maybe an eight-tenths of a percent increase to the economy yeah, the over 10 years. So it's, it's a the, lot less substantial. The, the Joint Committee on, uh, on Taxation staff basically has a long history of underestimating the economic growth effects of any tax legislation. That said, you know, I, I don't want to oversell this legislation. It's not well, going to have magical effects. Well, David, let me ask you. You say that there was a missed opportunity. They could have done a lot more. What should they have done in your view? Should it have been more of an individual tax cut? What? Well, the biggest thing that they, they failed to do is Im improve permanently the tax treatment of investment in things like factories or uh, technological development and so on down the line. In other words, they did not expense capital investment. Uh, they didn't expense structures. They didn't expense equipment uh, permanently. Uh, they made a, a lot of other mistakes. They kept the, the capital gains rate where it is. They kept the, the rate on pass-through businesses or, or individuals uh, very high. And for a lot of people, you'll actually see marginal tax rate increases. Uh, so there's, and I could get into a lot more details, but there's a, a long list of things they did not do to improve the tax system. Uh, David, if the uh, consequences of the overhaul lead to muted growth, in other words, this uh, pop that you're describing, or indeed even the stronger economy that's being described by the Republicans who passed it, if that does not appear, is there a way to put to rest the notion that tax cuts fuel economic growth? Well, I think it's virtually certain that tax uh, reductions in marginal tax rates and reductions in the cost of capital will fuel economic growth. That's pretty basic price theory, pretty basic public finance. It's not that tax cuts per se. It has nothing to do with sort of Keynesian multipliers and things like that. It's the fact that people are economically rational, and if they can get a higher rate of return, they're more likely to invest, they're more likely to work, they're more likely to save. Uh, and so I, I don't think... We'll get over that because I think it's almost incontrovertibly true. But then the question is, how do you do that? And reducing marginal tax rates is part of it. Reducing the cost of capital is part of it. This bill or legislation does improve those things, but it's not nearly as dramatic 
as it could have been, should have been. And it's not as, as dramatic as it started out. They ended up having to keep a long laundry list of special tax provisions uh, to, and, and various things on the individual side to, in effect, buy people off because they're, they needed virtually every Republican vote to get it done. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there, but uh, thanks very much, uh, David Burton. Looking forward to uh, having you in the new year and uh, to go over the effects of the uh, tax overhaul plan. David Burton is the Heritage Foundation's Senior Fellow in Economic Policy on the Tax Plan. You're listening to Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Pim Fox, along with Carol Masser. I'm Carol Masser, along with the wonderful Pim Fox, right here on Bloomberg Radio. We are in for Jonathan Farrow and Tom Keene. We do want to talk a little bit about the economic outlook, what it might mean for Fed policy. Joining us right now is Kevin Cummins. He's senior U.S. economist at NatWest Markets, uh, joining us uh, on the phone from, I believe, Connecticut. Uh, Kevin, good to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. You look at the outlook, you look at the economic outlook. There are folks that come on and they are optimistic about what's to come. They continue to see growth in 2018. Some are tempering it back. Where are you? Hi, good morning. Well, thanks for having me, Carol. Um, yeah, we're pretty optimistic on the overall outlook. We think the expansion is going to continue. Um, we're looking for growth this year right around 2.5% and to gradually accelerate into next year closer to 3%. I want to know about automobile sales and what, uh, what weight you give those to your outlook because it looks as though we are set for the first decline, full-year sales decline since the Great Recession. And I know that there are a lot of statistics that, you know, exclude automobiles, they exclude energy, whether that's inflation. But I'm wondering if you could talk about automobile sales and how you figure that that flows into the economy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the manufacturing more broadly is an important sector of the economy. In particular, autos drives a lot of manufacturing. Um, And as you mentioned, those are set to... Uh, moderate, although more recent months you've seen very strong demand in the wake of the hurricanes, which impacted a lot of, uh, you know, replacement automobiles have picked up in in the wake of that. Uh, In fact, we're looking for a nice rebound uh, that we'll get at the start of the year, uh, a pretty healthy reading close to 18 million units at an annualized rate. So that's a very strong, probably unsustainable pace more broadly. Um, but this year we're looking for closer to about a 17 million unit rate when it's all said and done for the 12 months of the year. Um, and we're looking for that to be pretty much sustained into 2018 as the consumer is in still pretty healthy shape. Do you think the consumer is in healthy enough shape to actually buy one of these new cars? Because the Kelly Blue Book says that the average sticker price paid for a new vehicle is nearly $36,000. That's up 2% from a year earlier. Those are November figures. Yeah, those are big numbers. But, uh, you know, with the sort of labor market that we've gotten, um, you know, the consumer seems to be kind of firing on all cylinders as we head into the start of the year. Do you think that they'll be able to continue to afford it, whether they put cash down, which is unlikely, but more likely to borrow or lease? Yeah, that's kind of the American way. I mean, you know, the labor market has remained very solid. If you look at payroll growth, we've averaged about 175 or so thousand jobs over the last 12 months or so. Um, the, the 
employment report that we'll get at the start of the year suggests that the consumer is likely to uh, have have a pretty good uh, wherewithal to spend uh, to start 2018. And now that you've gotten a little bit of momentum in the overall economy as we head into the year, uh, you know, when people are reminded uh, that confidence is high, we'll get a reading on that in a little bit. Uh, with the conference board measure, but but by all indications, there's no reason to suggest that there's going to be any sort of um, pullback from the consumer sector as 2018 starts. All right, Kevin Cummins, I'm a half glass full kind of girl. I'm just going to say that I'm pretty optimistic. Um, having said that, we have seen this economic cycle go on for some time. I know there isn't a mark on the calendar that just says, okay, time for the economy to turn down. But what is it that you're watching out for um, to see a different twist in this economic cycle? Uh, is a re recession at all on the outlook for you? Um, not for the next, say, 12 or so months. I'd put the odds, I mean, normally there's probably a chance of about 10% in any given expansion that you can, uh, you know, that a recession's going to come. So I, I'd put the odds somewhere close to that, maybe 10, 15% odds that you're going to get experience a recession in the next 12 months. But, you know, there's no real warning signs in the fundamentals for the economy. As I mentioned, the labor market remains very solid. We've seen good uh, income growth. If you look at wages and salaries last week, we got personal income and spending, and it showed wages and salary growth um, over 4%. So, you know, that's a very healthy pace uh, for the consumer. And given that the consumer uh, after you account for import growth is probably about 60% or so of the overall economy, um, you know, that that right there suggests that your overall economy is in pretty healthy shape. I mean, one of the more uh, positive things as we head into 2018, especially in the wake of the uh, plan for the tax cuts are uh, business investment. And, and by all indications, uh, we're likely to see a further acceleration uh, from that perspective. So, you know, you add that to the consumer's part and you're, you know, almost 80% or so there. Does it also uh, mean, though, more inflation and then that becomes maybe problematic? Yeah, I mean, inflation surprisingly enough, has been uh, as soft as it is, you know, trending below 2%. Uh, and the Fed is obviously uh, pretty sensitive to that idea. So I think, you know, the overall inflation backdrop doesn't suggest that you're going to get any sort of real upside risk to inflation here, but probably more gradual uh, pace of somewhere around one and three quarters to two percent over the next year or two. Kevin Cummins, he is the uh, NatWest a senior economist. Our guest is R.J. Gallo of Federated Investors, Senior Portfolio Manager, Head of Duration Committee. R.J. Gallo, what is a duration committee? <laughs> um, our duration committee is a group of senior portfolio managers, traders, uh, our global fixed income CIO, Bob Ostrowski, and we convene uh, every month and sometimes more frequently to look across the factors that we believe are driving U.S. interest rates and to set the duration governor that then permeates through the intermediate and long-term bond portfolios our firm manages. So 
Since Duration is one driver of bond returns, we try to bring together minds from across the fixed income group to set duration targeting that is uh, then followed you know, with, with judgment by the portfolio managers of the various portfolios we run. Okay. Can you give us an example of how the group has changed its recommendation so that we understand the mechanism by which it kind of implements these decisions? Yeah, absolutely. Every fixed income portfolio at Federated has a, uh, a strategy-relevant benchmark. So, for example, the total return bond fund, which is our largest um, investment-grade portfolio, multi-sector across treasuries, corporates, uh, high-yield uh, emerging markets, et cetera, is managed relative to the Barclays Aggregate Index. Um, the ad index, of course, has a duration. And the duration committee, our output, is to provide a recommended uh, percentage of that index duration that the portfolio manager should follow, but they're given latitude around it. So, for example, um, for much of this year, we've expected uh, Treasury yields to rise. And as a result, uh, we have been recommending a duration typically between 90 to 95, sometimes 97 and a half. So being short your benchmark duration, uh, because we anticipated as yields rise, being short would give you opportunities for relative outperformance. So, RJ, when the tax package passed and as it was working its way through Congress, what did you guys go back to your offices and sit down and work and say, okay, here's what we need to think about different portfolios as a result of this? What changed? Uh, that's a great question. Um, it, it, interestingly enough, you know, there's it, a lot of times we talk about, you know, everybody's been expecting yields to rise for, for a very long time. And oftentimes people focus on the 10-year Treasury. But if you go back and you look at the yield on the Bloomberg Barclays Treasury Index, which is the Treasury component of the, of the ag, mm -hmm. uh, that index yield was 80 basis points uh, at one point in 2013. It's 224 basis points as of yesterday's close. Um, on this calendar year alone, it's risen 35 basis points, driven primarily by the fact that the two years up 70 plus basis points and the five years up 30, as is the three year up almost 60. The 10 year, on the other hand, is about where it started the year. So we've had a massive flattening, almost a twisting is a better term, of the Treasury yield curve. The fiscal policy change that you just brought up, the tax bill, you know, we've been talking all year long. What will the Trump administration and the Republican Capitol Hill be able to deliver with respect to significant changes in fiscal policy to include taxes, uh, to include health care, uh, and to include deregulation? And on that last point, deregulation, they've been quietly making significant changes, um, which arguably are stimulative, at least in the short run, as businesses feel that the administration uh, and Washington, D.C., broadly speaking, uh, is somewhat more business-friendly. It's, it's a sentiment builder, if you will. And they've been delivering on that for a long time. Healthcare, we know what happened there. Uh, you know, got close, didn't change it. Um, and then ultimately, we felt that the failure on Obamacare would increase the probability of a major tax bill being passed and signed into law. We felt that the political imperative of the somewhat fractious Republican Party between the White House and Capitol Hill um, they all shared common interests, and they needed to move forward. And we thought the tax bill would happen. To be frank, we thought it would be signed in Q118, um, but that political imperative was very motivating, and it got signed in 2017. So um, the, the progress that we expected, in fact, did manifest itself. It's a little sooner than we expected. Uh, and we do think it's going to be somewhat stimulative. 
Um, I have questions about sort of the content of the tax cut. I've heard some of your interview earlier with the individual from the Heritage Foundation, and you were asking some, some of the questions I would ask. So, um, but generally speaking, I think this, the short-term stimulative nature of the tax cut is it's hard to deny. Long-term, we worry about deficits. Mm-hmm. So in the near term, the simple fact that the deficits will probably go up. Um, I'm a believer in dynamic scoring, but I'm also a believer that tax cuts don't pay for themselves. History has not proven that to be true. Uh, that suggests that uh, it's one argument for staying short duration. Uh, there'll be more treasuries issued. Happens to come at a time when the Fed will be buying fewer treasuries. Uh, supply and demand matter uh, in everything, <laughs> and they should matter in the treasury market. So we think that the traje- trajectory of treasury yield, generally speaking, should be upwards. Uh, the curve has been a massive twister. Um, don't know if that will last. It's possible some near-term steepening, in fact, will occur as you see a little bit more economic stimulus, as you see inflation slowly building, uh, and as you see more treasury issuance with less demand from the Fed all at the same time. So our view on the tax bill was that this is in line with our anticipation that yields should be rising, and it was one of the factors we considered in making sure that we stayed short, you know, in the 90s, if you will, relative to index duration uh, as we got through the fourth quarter of this year. R.J. Gallo, over at Federated Senior Vice President, Senior Portfolio Manager, and Head of Municipal Bond Investment Group, and also Head of the Duration Committee at Federated. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.